Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Technology Report. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our program is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Justin Sherman, the founder of Global Cyber Strategies, a DC research and advisory firm, and a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council Cyber Statecraft Initiative, who is also a Wired Magazine contributor. But first, joining us is Sam Cayucci. He is the CEO and founder of One Huddle, an innovative workforce performance and training uh, software and application that's just been adopted by the US Air Force and Navy Special Operations Commands. The One Huddle tool uh, has been also adopted by many, many leading sports teams, businesses, and organizations that allow app-based training for increasingly uh, distributed uh, organizations. Uh, and certainly after COVID, uh, you guys have been uh, particularly supercharged. Sam, it's a pleasure having you back on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Vago. Uh, and, and especially so since uh, you're joining us uh, on the move. Uh, congratulations on the partnerships uh, with uh, the Air Force uh, and the Navy. You've joined us over uh, the last couple of years talking uh, not just about your product, but also about generational change uh, in the workforce, as well as the changing uh, nature of work. And I want to get to all of that uh, in a minute. But first, tell the audience what you guys do that's really different and particularly effective when it comes to training folks, because your application Right, started from your interest in sort of training a new generation in more interactive human skills, right? I mean, the younger generation has been very uh, screen-based uh, sometimes, right? They're more apt to text than to pick up a phone. Talk to us about what your software and your application and your training approach, what it is and what makes it so innovative. Sure. Yeah, you know, I think even we started the company about six years ago, and even before COVID, we knew that work was changing pretty rapidly at five different generations at work for the first time ever. So while it's probably in style at times to complain about millennials, now you got now you got Gen Z to worry about as well. Uh, you now you got now you're talking about Gen Alpha. So there's a bunch of different generations now at work. And you know, as we looked around the workforce, start to realize that um, the way that we've been coaching and training and developing workers for jobs today hasn't changed that much in the last. 100 years, you, know, you manuals that you print that you hope people read, uh, you put people in workshops and all day trainings and force people to watch videos. Uh, the, you know, I started the company because I realized that as a business owner, it's really tough to keep new hires up to speed, get new hires onboarded and continuously develop people. So when we started the company One Huddle with that goal, how do you get people ready to work faster? How do you get them to performance quicker? How do you sustain it? And, you know, we started in the sports world. Our first client was right in D.C., Monumental Sports, which was the Washington Capitals and Wizards using us to help prepare their people for game day. And we signed Madison Square Garden. Then we got Lowe's Hotels. And we pretty rapidly grew in these environments where people show up to work every day. How they do things affects bottom line. They have to perform in that moment which when we talk about the military here in a second, you probably hear a lot of parallels. You know, you have to perform at a high level every day, day in and day out. And that's where we started. And, you know, today we, we work with hundreds of brands across the globe, across a dozen different verticals. Uh, most excited about our work in the military today. And I think that we're, you know, post-COVID looking at a world where companies and organizations and um, teams need to be able to keep their people ready faster than ever before. 
by the way, congratulations on that work because when uh, you and I were starting, you guys were, uh, it was uh, six years ago when you guys were getting uh, underway roughly at the same time when we were getting uh, underway uh, as well. And so I've enjoyed watching this journey. Talk to us about how your special operations customer, right? What is it they want? Because some of the things they want from the tool is a little bit different than what you're doing for commercial customers. And I should say, even at that early point, you were thinking about adapting uh, this software and seeing military application for it. What does the Air Force and the Navy want your, uh, uh, your applications to be doing for them? Sure, great question. The, the initial introduction to the military community started with the US Air Force, who uh, one, of, one of their most important trainings that they are thinking about on an annual basis is their SAPR protocol, which is their sexual assault prevention uh, training initiative. It's a required training has to, uh, all airmen across all bases have to go through it. And it is one of the trainings that you went, when you think about what I just mentioned a second ago is falls into that bucket of it's long form. It's not the most exciting. It's serious uh, content. And a lot of the science shows that once you go through it, uh, some of our data has showed that you forget as much as 70% of what you learn in a SAPR training within just three days. And the amount of dollars going into funding these types of programs uh, for something so that has such weak outcomes is a problem. And we, we won uh, several SBIR, uh, which is a, a small business innovation grant that we had submitted for alongside a base uh, in the Dakotas that was interested in in this initiative, and so the Air Force started with us for uh, for this for this reason. Uh, we it takes an average Air Force base about eleven months to get everybody on the base through this Sapper certification program. Thousands of hours of man time. We did it in three months. So huge impact on reduction in time. Which when you talk to folks, you know, in the military community say that the time that they save, that they can now dedicate towards more important uh, initiatives, more important work uh, that uh, our military community, community needs to be focused on was really valuable. So that's where we started. We're now doing some work with Navy Special Forces, Special Operations Command, as they think about uh, how this can work more tactically in some additional environments uh, for the Navy. And and. Uh, how is it that, uh, you know, we've talked about this before, where you have a tendency of having a better uh, retention rate for the information that you're conveying? What do you attribute that to, right? How is it that you're engineering these uh, uh, tools to make sure that it's actually, right? I mean, so it's not just, you know, if you're just going to check, check, check a box, that's one thing. But you're, if you're doing the training to actually leave residual and lasting benefit, then you have to get people to be engaged and remember. How is it you're doing that? piece of it because you guys are showing much higher retention numbers than having it escape people's heads in three days. Sure. Yeah. The science of learning would dictate that there's a very important ingredient that has to be present for any type of learning or training to stick. If you really want to create an environment where knowledge transfers to skill, transfers to habit uh, and creates a loop uh, in that missing ingredient, Vago is struggle. And it's, it sounds, it's, it's kind of a throwback to our early days when we're growing up where we learn by playing, we learn through failure, we learn through struggle. Um, and also in the military community, this is also a principle that is adopted widely in all types of training environments, whether it's your after action re reviews or it's different simulations. Failure is not something we shy away from. Failure is something we lean into. And it is a very powerful learning principle. 
Now, the problem with most traditional classroom training is it's an absence of struggle. There is no failure. There is a watch and a recite. There is no learning through this struggle or exploration. Uh, neuroscientists would call this generative learning, where you, you create the learning and generate it by the act of exploration. And all we've done is take those principles, plug it into a platform with the right content from our partners, and ensure that not only is it something that has positive outcomes, which uh, some of the data that we've pointed to with the uh, U.S. Air Force in that example that I mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, they saw retention go um, from what I mentioned, you forget 70% within three days, content stuck with people 11 times longer. Uh, you know, in that specific uh, scenario that we did in, in 2022. And uh, I think, you know, this is all part of the fact that the product is built on this foundation of learning's got to be hard, you got to struggle through it, you got to wrestle with it, and it'll yield better outcomes. Um, and you guys are also doing some different things for the special operators, right, on nutrition, uh, weight, exercise, right? I mean, talk to us a little bit about those modules uh, and, and what you uh, hope to achieve with them. And then I have to ask you what I normally ask you about, which is uh, generational change, the pandemic, and the future of work. On, on, on the health and fitness side, you know, because it's a natural, been a natural progression for us where we've gone from... Uh, we've gone from the product being used for a traditional training environment to, you know, when you think about the performance of a, of a, of a employee, a, a crew member, a, um, a pilot, a, uh, a team member in all these environments, you have to develop people in three ways. You have to develop them positionally for the job they're in. You have to develop them professionally for the job that they're going to next. And you have to develop them personally so that they can bring their best self to a job and the health, fitness, wellness examples, uh, you know, we're, we're using games to recommunicate uh, knowledge on anything from, you know, how to, how to be healthy to different training and development programs that they're doing from a fitness side uh, to uh, supplementation, which is a very big uh, protocol right now that we're doing, doing work on. You know, obviously we just got a few months ago out of, you know, mental health awareness month. Uh, we're doing a lot of work with games, reinforcing concepts around time management um, and mental health. And this is, again, I, I think this is a very positive uh, progression of the way organizations are thinking about work, which is it isn't just about developing, developing someone to do the task and the job. We know that the ability to perform your best work is also affected by how motivated and inspired you are in that moment. You know, so a lot of the games that we have on One Huddle that I would point to as being some of our best games uh, may not have anything to do specifically with the job that we're preparing uh, the player for. Uh, that's uh, that's certainly uh, interesting. Um, before I get to to work, what's the growth plan, right? I mean, you're uh, at a base uh, where you uh, obviously demonstrated this. You're now with the Air Force uh, and Navy Special Operations Commands, right? I mean, what's the growth strategy on the defense side of the business uh, in in terms of sort of scaling? Uh, the product and increasing its its reach throughout the DoD enterprise. Yeah, I mean we're you know we're things take time, Vago, right? <laughs> so exactly. Yeah, you know, we're being patient, and you know I think that we're really excited about the work that we've done uh, with with the base I mentioned uh, with the Air Force. We uh, we just got back from a big event at Fort Dix. We won a big startup startup pitch event uh, for their um, their Air and Sea Show Day. Uh, we are. Um, you know, I think like anything, trying to continue to, to share with the community the work uh, that we're doing, 
And, um, you know, we're having a lot of conversations. I think the big challenge, though, to give you like an example of a challenge, you know, the real challenge that exists is, you know, you deal, you're dealing with budgeting and you're dealing with, um, you're dealing in, a, in an environment where um, innovation is very important. And it's important to keep, you know, our uh, military community ready, ready for, ready for war, ready, ready for whatever the next fight is. And, you know, we, we're spending a lot of time learning, as you could imagine, as a company that did not start in the military, you know, learning the nature of how do you, how do you, um, how do you grow and how do you communicate and how do you network uh, across this landscape? We have only been received well in every environment we're in. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we're, we're, um, we're, we are definitely trying to, to work as best we can to unlock the appropriate funds uh, for uh, some something uh, something you know in in you know in our category when you think it's about training, coaching, and development. Uh, so I think you know our growth strategy is to continue to chop, keep, keep chopping. You know we say chop wood, like keep chopping it every day. Right. Keep delivering to the clients we're working with. Keep getting on base and talk to folks and and talk to people about what they're seeing and what they like and what they want to do more. Become a good partner. And you know this isn't just a a, a one off for us. We're in the community. And we're trying to learn, and that's how we think we're going to grow. Um, let me uh, ask you uh, the question, which I ask you all the time. Uh, you joined us during the pandemic as well to talk about sort of the future of work. Now that we're out of the pandemic, um, how has work on a permanent basis changed, uh, Sam? Uh, and how are generations interacting differently, right? I mean, we had a great retirement. We've got younger folks who have different expectations of work, right? So how has work fundamentally changed? um in in the wake of the pandemic and and indeed how does ai then change the equation right i mean it, it's not pixie dust you know just sprinkle ai but ai then is is going to be you know even uh you know what we have with generative uh artificial intelligence it, you know folks do have a sense that there's going to be a quantum almost industrial uh uh age kind of uh sh shift in 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 how we work what what are what, what do you see given that what you see is what's going to shape where where you guys end up strategically and business wise. Yeah, in, on the how has work changed? You definitely have at all corners of the of the market in all industries from from private sector to public sector to to inside of the DoD. You have you have people that are coming to work every day with a little bit of a different expectation of of what uh, what work is, and I think that's a reality. Now, what 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 is the change in mindset? You know, I think there's an expectation that work should provide uh, an environment where um, you know people can bring their best selves to a job. Now, there's a lot of work that is rote and routine. You know, that's just the nature of of our environment. Some jobs are are more creative. Some jobs are more technical. Some jobs are more tactical. But I do think that workers are showing up to work expecting more and thirsty for more coaching. You know, we say at One Huddle, the best managers are leaders, but the best leaders are coaches. And the best coaches roll their sleeves up every day and they they focus on not just teaching people what to do and how to do it, but inspiring them to want to do it. And that function is so critical today in a world where frontline managers in the private sector or, you know, if you're talking about, uh, you know, coaches and managers and leaders that are on the front line have to meet their workers where they are and that may be different depending on your audience. Where they are is, is different. Uh, but I think that, that that is where work is changing. Workers are expecting a little bit more. They're looking for a little bit more guidance. 
uh, looking for a little bit more support. Uh, and if you want to build a high performing team or organization, you have to you have to respond in, in kind. And you got to be great at that. AI is going to uh, fundamentally disrupt the way that we work. But to your point, technology has consistently fundamentally disrupted the way we work. Uh, I do think that it is going to create a tremendous amount of opportunity for new types of work. Uh, my fear at times is that organizations that underinvest in technology to skill up their people to be able to work alongside the effective AI is a major risk for economies around the world, a major risk for organizations. You know, the ones that simply say we're going to you know, lean into AI for some function while not simultaneously thinking about how you use it to skill up or reskill your workforce is a fundamental error that you know we see it every day in like the hospitality world and in the in 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 the retail world where organizations are just trying to cost cut and adopt AI and they don't realize that you're going to pay the price at some point in time. So again, I think AI is is going to make an impact. It's going to make a real one. It's going to help, it's going to make a lot of things that we do that are dangerous or rote or meaningless work go away, which I think is a good thing, but it will open up doors for more meaningful work uh, in the right organizations. Sam, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, best of luck uh, with the product and with the business. I think it's uh, really incredible uh, what you guys are doing with uh, game-based, challenging play uh, that can serve as a powerful uh, learning tool. Best of luck and already looking forward to having you back on again soon to give us another update. Thanks, Fargo. And a word from our sponsors. Our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell, Leonardo DRS, and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And joining us now is a friend of this program, Justin Sherman, the founder of Global Cyber Strategies, a DC research and advisory firm. He's also a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council Cyber Statecraft Initiative and also a Wired Magazine contributor. Justin, welcome back to the program. It's always a pleasure having you on. Thanks for having me. Uh, and I should also uh, point out that he is uh, the latest uh, of our guests uh, to uh, have been sanctioned by Russia's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, uh, the Center for Naval Analyses uh, team. And uh, Sam Bendet uh, is kind enough to join us every week to discuss uh, uh, the war, uh, uh, Russia's war on Ukraine. So, Justin, welcome to that illustrious list. <laughs> Uh, one of the few podcasts that can that can open that way. Um, yeah, no, I mean, you know, they've uh, last year they sanctioned 900 people, basically anybody in the U.S. saying anything bad about Putin, and now there's a new round. So, um, yeah, you know, it's uh, I, it's sort of a weird thing, but I guess it's an honor to be among these other sort of distinguished folks doing doing work on uh, on the Putin regime. So. Uh, in indeed, congratulations. Uh, I think becoming a, increasingly a mark of distinction for those who are uh, speaking up. And I find it interesting that a lot of people are, you know, it's for their public facing comments as opposed to the other work that they might be doing, uh, you know, that that is more sensitive, certainly people uh, on, on some of, uh, you know, some of the lists, especially at FFRDCs. Right. It's, right. it's fascinating to me that it's the public facing stuff that really gets them. Anyway, um, last year uh, or earlier this year, I should point out, you did a piece for the Brookings Institution where you were talking about Russia's biggest annual hacking conference. Uh, we're now uh, in that uh, again. And authoritarian regimes 
um, have a tendency of sort of telegraphing their priorities, right? In whatever, you know, th this, this conference isn't something that just, you know, it's not like Billington that, you know, the government isn't setting the agenda for. Uh, this is, is something uh, very different. And, and the Russian sort of cyber ecosystem is becoming more of a hothouse. Kind of talk to us a little bit about what, what you know, what are the takeaways, right? What do you find so interesting about this? And, and what is, what are the messages you're drawing from it? It's a really interesting conference that has happened pretty much every year since 2011, with the exception of uh, COVID uh, in, in 2020, it was canceled. But uh, it's called Positive Hack Days. Uh, it is the largest hacking conference in Russia. Uh, it is uh, basically the equivalent to Black Hat or DEF CON, which listeners will be familiar with as sort of the, the big US uh, hacker uh, conferences. Certainly, there are lots of cyber and tech conferences, but really focused on who's actually, you know, typing the code and and breaking into the systems. And so, uh, it's a significant event because it's the largest hacking conference. Uh, it's also significant uh, because it's put on by a company called Positive Technologies, and Positive Technologies uh, was sanctioned by the U.S. government in 2021, uh, even before. Uh, you know, of course, the sort of full-on war on Ukraine last February, because this company uh, provides direct support to the Russian intelligence services, including on uh, allegedly discovering flaws in software and hardware uh, and firmware, and building exploits for those those flaws and handing them over to the security services. So, um, you know, so it's a big conference. It's it's put on by this sanctioned company, and the intelligence services uh, in Russia go to this conference to recruit people. Um, now, that's not distinct to Russia necessarily, right? I mean, most cyber conferences, like uh, whoever in the government in whatever country goes, because it's good to be aware of what's happening and all that, and and they do want to look for talent. But as you said, it's a very different environment uh, in Russia, and so. Uh, you know, not everyone who goes, of course, agrees with the government necessarily, but uh, there have been a bunch of uh, government speakers in the last uh, year or two spreading a ton of propaganda, uh, sort of repeating the state line. So uh, last year, one of these was Maria Zakharova, uh, the sort of notorious spokesperson for Russia's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, um, which basically means she's just constantly lying uh, and doing whataboutism and right spreading the Kremlin line, um, BuzzFeed News, which now is unfortunately uh, shuttered. But uh, I love has this article where they call her Russia's troll in chief um, because she's sort of out there defending the Kremlin. So like she was there last year sort of talking about how, you know, it was the West that was fracturing the global tech ecosystem. It was the United States fault that the Internet was less free and all these right. you know ridiculous things this year. It's been really interesting to see some of that, uh, again, from some government folks, but there's really an emphasis on the war, actually. They don't call it a war, of course, but uh, the war on Ukraine talk about sanctions uh, quite openly um, and how sanctions have hurt the Russian tech sector. And then the last piece is talking about how Russia has adapted. Uh, and this gets to your question about how how is the Russian cyber ecosystem right. doing? And so how have so how have they uh, adapted uh, in this? Right. I mean, it's becoming its own ecosystem. I remember years ago talking to folks uh, that the more sanctions we put on them, in some respects, the better they're getting. In some respects, whereas they're on the other hand, they're getting worse in a lot of other ways because now they don't they have access maybe to a little bit less technology. But what has the impact been of all these sanctions on the Russian cyber ecosystem? 
as you said, it's 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 still mixed. Uh, I think from from the sort of trend that we've seen. Uh, of course, the san- there have been more sanctions. They've been more targeted. Uh, there has been a lot more sanctioning of these private sector companies in the last five or six years. That the, the sort of contractors to the GRU, Russia's military intelligence, to uh, the FSB, the domestic security agency. Uh, and so that that's been good. Um, you know, in some areas, the Russians have been forced to adapt and have done a decent job at doing so. Uh, domestic software is one area. They uh, began a push several years ago to eradicate Microsoft Windows from the country uh, with the belief that, you know, when uh, Microsoft is a U.S. company, the U.S. is spying on us through Windows, whatever. And so they started developing a domestic operating system, um, which is called Astra Linux, to replace Windows. So there's things like that where having all of these sanctions, having all these Western companies pull out of the country or discontinue service to the country has forced the cyber ecosystem to build some of its own tools, build some of its own software. There are other areas where that's just been a complete failure. Um, Hardware is one example, right? The Russians have... I don't want to say no, but very little microelectronics manufacturing capability. Right. So semiconductors, memory chips, forget it, right? Like they have been reliant for years on American and European parts and Chinese parts and now uh, are doing one of two things. Companies are looking to China for replacements or B, they're still getting stuff from the West. They're getting it through illicit procurement. Uh, and right. sanctions evasion. And we've seen in all the various reports, and I know um, you've done a lot of, of really interesting uh, discussion of this as well. Like there's lots of ways these countries evade sanctions uh, and get this tech. So it's been a mixed bag, but I think, you know, the Russians are really thinking about how can we work with China, with other Asian countries, with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization um, to make sure we're not too technologically isolated. Uh, indeed, it's uh, it's going to be uh, fascinating, and I think you know, right? I mean, the administration is looking at putting pressure uh, on any of uh, our partners that continue to do uh, trade with the Russians, because obviously these are massive backdoors through which uh, they're actually uh, using. Um, uh, uh, you know, obviously, you know, but, but, but there are a lot of washing machines that are going to Turkmenistan that are then, you know, making the, those electronics are making into Russian weapons. Um, right. I'd be remiss. We, we don't have much time left, but there are two questions I want to ask you. One is about TikTok. Uh, Montana has a TikTok ban. Um, the administration has banned TikTok from government devices. And every all eyes are sort of on Congress on what legislation uh, ultimately looks like, and does the United States permit this or or not? I should say uh, the Chinese-owned company has gone to U.S. court in order to stop Montana, you know, claiming uh, infringement on uh, its First Amendment rights. How does this debate play out? Because you've been following this for longer than a lot of people I know, or just about anybody I know, actually. I think it will be... Uh, so TikTok has sued uh, the state of Montana. I think it's variable, but it probably will result in this ban getting overturned for a variety of due process and First Amendment and other reasons. The The quick summary is that originally the Montana legislature wrote a bill just about TikTok. It said, we're not going to let anyone in Montana use TikTok. And importantly, we're going to focus the penalties only on TikTok and on the app stores. So you as a user are not going to be penalized if you end up using TikTok, but we're going to go after um you know, app stores if they let people in Montana use it. 
the bill went through a couple phases of debate where people said, let's broaden it. We can't just do TikTok. We have to make it a framework. And people saying, let's just do TikTok. And it ended up just being TikTok. Um, so we'll see what happens. I think the big challenge is that the Montana Constitution has a line that says uh, it's basically a bill of attainder provision, right? That says that you can't write a law targeted at just one company, essentially, or, or one individual. Uh, and so that could be a big problem because they wrote a bill just about TikTok and um, you know, TikTok may end up winning in court by saying you're violating your own state constitution by doing this. And where is it that we should end up with this? I've asked you this question before, but it serves for a recap for those who might not be paying as close attention, right? What's the right answer here, uh, ultimately? I think we need to think about a comprehensive framework, right? Um, the way I describe this is all apps have privacy problems. All apps have cybersecurity problems. All apps have disinformation problems. They're perhaps a little bit more concerning in China's case. So what do we do? We create a baseline of data privacy rules and laws and regulations. And then you can say, okay, on top of that, if you are, for instance, a huge Chinese platform operating in the US, that introduces maybe some additional risk. So we'll have things on top of that. Not to do this sort of whack-a-mole, ban one, leave the rest solution, which clearly has not worked. We've had so many data security and espionage issues that you're never going to fix espionage, right? Like anyone who says you can deter cyber espionage is full of it, frankly, but um, uh, right, you're never going to stop states from spying on each other. But you know, clearly our piecemeal approach has not worked. And so I just think getting away from whack-a-mole is the best way to handle this. Um, we've got about uh, 30 uh, seconds. Uh, Florida Republican Congressman uh, Brian Mast uh, sponsored uh, legislation uh, to limit Chinese, uh, China's ability to develop critical undersea cables that passed the House uh, in late March, I want to say. Um, what's new with the measure? What's next um, that folks need to be paying attention to? This is not a good bill. Um, this bill passed the House. I do not think it is going through the Senate, which is good. The short is it basically tries to limit how much U.S. companies can touch anything submarine cable related linked to China. In general, are there risks there? Absolutely. I fully support the fact that the U.S. government is doing more security reviews through Team Telecom of submarine cables, right? Countries spy through cables. You know, Chinese companies could backdoor cables if they build them, right? All of that's a real concern. This bill just does not understand the fact that international engagement is a necessary part of cables and is a necessary part of U.S. leadership in cable tech. And so cutting off any opportunity for a U.S. company to interact with a Chinese one in that space is actually bad because you're going to lose a lot of economic uh, opportunities that are really important for U.S. market leadership. Uh, interesting. Um, Justin, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for uh, joining us and look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks so much. Thank you.